0: But most agree that regardless of how the speech was understood, it didn't really stand out as especially important in its own time. So how did it become so famous? And how do other speeches that are big hits in their own time
1: fade from the memory of
0: later generations?
1: Those are two of the questions we'll be exploring for the rest of the hour today. We're marking the 150th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, with a look at the role of oratory in American life. We'll hear why the lament of a dying Indian was recited by schoolchildren in America's early years. And we'll revisit a presidential speech that's remembered for words that weren't even in it.
0: But first, we're going to spend a few more minutes with the Gettysburg Address. Peter, Ed, as I understand it, when the speech was actually given in 1863... It was basically spun by the papers in strictly partisan terms, you know, no different than any other speech. The Republicans called it a great success. The Democrats, they kind of trashed it. One newspaper, I think, even said it was dishwatery. Ouch. (laughs) So how did the speech change in our memory, our understanding of it? I mean, after all, millions of words were spilled on those battlefields along with the blood of American soldiers. Why did this speech, out of all the speeches given, become so important in our memory?
1: Well, let me tell you one thing that's obvious. If the Union hadn't won, the words would mean something different,
0: (laughs) you know? But as uh
1: it turns out, throughout the 1860s and 1870s, goodness gracious, it's just not clear what's been won or lost in the war. Mm -hmm. People are still fighting over the black vote, over the limits of black freedom. But by the 1880s, and not surprisingly perhaps, it's at a reunion at this battlefield that the Gettysburg Address sort of comes back into visibility or audibility when it's first read at a reunion at the battlefield, and then in 1895 it's actually put in bronze for the first time at the battlefield. And Ed, which words are are really resonant for Americans,
0: uh, you know, on the eve of the 20th century?
1: Well, what they love about this is that it's about putting the nation back together. Right. A new nation conceived in liberty that is—people love those words— the fact that the word slavery never appears here, unlike the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been far more important in the Lincoln corpus and in the American memory before this, uh, is precisely what makes it so valuable. So how do they
0: handle stuff like a new birth of freedom or all men are created equal? How, how, how can they process that without really addressing slavery, emancipation?
1: Yeah, Brian, but here's another way of thinking about it. What's the first great American film, Brian?
0: Uh, Right, that thing about not being so equal. (laughs) Birth of a Nation.
1: Birth of a nation. Exactly. And it seems so strange yeah. the birth of a nation would not be about the actual birth of a nation, but the birth of the nation as a rebirth after the civil war and reconstruction. It's, and it's the a rebirth. White, it's a white rebirth, right? Ed? Oh, exactly. Matter of fact, it says in the opening credits about the Aryan people. And I kid you not. Okay. This nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. And that's what they mean. The nation was born not reborn, but born in the decades after Reconstruction, after the black menace had been put down and the proud Aryan people of the North and the South had been reunited. So it's so spooky to think about of all the great language in the Gettysburg Address. In the early 20th century, what's picked up is the racialized language of a unified nation of white
2: people. And the key word here is people, the people, a singular people, That is, uh, it's a united people. It's not this universal people that will take in everybody. This is not the people of the uh, Statue of Liberty. Welcome to our shores. This is this particular people in world history.
0: Well, I can tell you what else is cited in the Gettysburg Address by progressive presidents from Teddy Roosevelt to Woodrow Wilson uh, well into the 20s and the 30s, and that is the notion That this is, and now to quote from the speech, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. That these ideas of a democracy, you're right, Peter, a democracy that happens to exclude uh, women uh, as voters and (laughs) uh African-American voters. But, you know, if you want a unitary people, you got to get there somehow. uh, That this is a democracy that stands for all of the people. Mm -hmm. And it stands for those people through powerful presidents. And it's really in the first 20 years of the 20th century that presidents claim their power from representing all of the people.
2: And they have a mission, don't they, Brian? That is the American people. It's a great people, a great nation that has work to do on this planet to promote the progress of civilization and this helps explain something, Brian, that
1: I've never really understood. How is the humble, humane Lincoln memorialized in that enormous white mausoleum <laughs> thing at the Lincoln Memorial in the nineteen twenties? Right? It, it looks imperial rather than sort of democratic.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How can we have such a powerful monument? In Washington of Lincoln, you're right, Ed, it doesn't represent the humble Lincoln, but it does represent the early 20th century view of what makes a president powerful, and that is
1: that he stands for all of the people. And what fits your interpretation so well, Brian, are the very last words of the Gettysburg Address, shall not perish from the earth The United States is saving this for everybody, you know, that it's a global role. So, Brian, the the meaning of the Gettysburg Address is pretty much fixed by 1922. Is that what we're saying? No, Ed. And that's because
0: in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, that reconciliation, that structure that is forged on the understanding that the South will exclude African Americans from the
2: people— It comes
0: undone. It's challenged by the civil rights movement.
2: And the very idea that there is a people is now made problematic. If we're so deeply divided by Jim Crow and racial segregation and prejudice, then we can't be a great people. So when Martin Luther King is speaking before the March on
0: Washington in 1963— King goes back to the very beginning of the Gettysburg Address, the words that are echoed from the Declaration of Independence. And here's the line from the Gettysburg Address dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So we go from the end of the Gettysburg Address right back to the beginning. And Peter,
2: I'm guessing you're going to say the beginning of the nation as well. Right. Lincoln becomes the authentic spokesman for these ideas that Jefferson had first articulated, and that gives us this wonderful storyline of American history going back to Jefferson through Lincoln to us today. All men are created equal. You know, the irony of this is that Jefferson, of course, and his fellow revolutionaries were not including slaves or freed people (laughs) in their notion of the American people. All men might be created equal under natural rights, but they weren't created equal in the new United States of America. In some ways, Jefferson's words took on a new anti-slavery emancipatory meaning through Lincoln's mouth. He's the person who authentically articulates those moving words from the Declaration, while Jefferson himself is seen as a slaveholder, a hypocrite, he is in history's dustbin even as Lincoln redeems his words and makes them live in the new United States of America. That's a Lincoln, and that's a Gettysburg Address that we can live by. And it's so great. Just as
1: Lincoln's displacing Jefferson, so does Martin Luther King stand before Lincoln and take his role in that <laughs> in that drama. That's so right. So we're left with this paradox that the very words that Lincoln utters and that we've memorized and that we put in bronze and tell our children to learn by heart actually become a sort of a constant reproach to ourselves, a constant goad to yes. ourselves to make ourselves better. It's hard to see how 272 words could have done any more work in our history.
0: It's time for a short break. When we get back, how a handful of 19th century women made millions in today's dollars, simply by speaking their minds.
2: You're listening to Backstory. We'll be back in a minute.